Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, during Lent this year, we, we have not been talking about uh, giving something up or putting uh, some vice off. Instead, we have been talking about putting on something, putting on uh, the Christian virtues. The virtues are those good moral habits that when we practice them in light of God's grace to us in Jesus, they, they point people like us towards love, love of God and love of neighbor. The Apostle Paul told the young Christians in Ephesus to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. And this means that the virtues are a normal and needed part of us growing up in the faith. So this morning we're going to talk about faithfulness. And I'm going to read from Matthew 26 for us, verses 36 through 46. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 26. This happened uh, on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the, the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang those words that you would unveil your beauty to our sight. And so we ask that that would be true as we talk about this word that we've read and heard together, that you would break through whatever it is that we're experiencing in this moment, that you'd break through those of us who feel, to those of us who feel really close to you and those of us who feel far from you, those of us who have faith, those of us who don't, that you would break through to each of us that you would show us the beauty of your grace to us in Jesus, and you would change us by it again. And we prayed in his name. Amen. What is faithfulness? What is faithfulness? That's the question. And I think that a story about faithfulness is probably better for us than a wordy definition and that's why we just read about Jesus in Gethsemane. 
And actually, I think our apprehension of what faithfulness really is will be deepened if we start actually not in Gethsemane, but in the moments that led up to Gethsemane, those minutes just right before they got there. So let me tell you what's just happened in Jesus' life. Jesus and the disciples have eaten their last meal together, and Judas has gone off into the night to do whatever it is he's going to do. The rest of the disciples sang a hymn with Jesus, and together they walk outside into the darkness and head together to the Mount of Olives. And when they get to the Mount of Olives, this is what Jesus said to them. You will all fall away because of me this night. But after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. You'll all fall away, but I'll see you in Galilee. In other words, you're all going to be unfaithful, but I will be faithful. You will all break your promises, but that will not hinder me from keeping mine. Church, if you want to know what faithfulness looks like, what it sounds like, if you want to know what faithfulness feels like, then that's it. You'll fall away, but I'll meet you in Galilee anyway. I'll keep my promise. It's almost unbelievable, really, to our ears. Jesus knows exactly what it is that's going to happen. He knows what it is that these guys are going to do. And despite their treachery, their denials, their cowardice, despite their unfaithfulness, Jesus promises to meet them back in Galilee later. That is faithfulness. And then, of course, there is Gethsemane. Right, where the fidelity of Jesus gets magnified so brightly that we can hardly even look at it. And I think, church, that's the best place for people like us to start, about, start talking about cultivating the virtue of faithfulness in our own lives. We have to be staring at the brightness of the sun as best we can. Because Jesus' faithfulness isn't just the greatest example of faithfulness that we have. It is also the power to make us into faithful people ourselves. So it's good for us to start by being honest. We need to be honest with ourselves as individuals. We need to be honest with each other. We live in a world of evanescent commitments. We live in a world of reluctant promises. I mean, I, I remember the day that my cell phone contract ran out for the last time. It is so, so dumb that I remember that day. But I remember that day because of the sense of freedom I felt when it finally came. I remember that day because I remember how free I finally felt from being locked down, how free I was to do whatever I wanted. Church, that was 13 years ago. Our mobile companies figured us out a long time ago. They know we don't want to make commitments. We don't want to feel obligated to anything or anyone. And so they are happy to obligate, they're happy to accommodate us. 
And that's no big deal when it comes to our mobile phones, but you and I know that that impulse is something that shoots through every other part of our lives. It's something big that shoots through our whole culture. As a culture, we go out of our way to avoid commitments. We go out of our way to avoid making promises. We, church, rarely ever have to practice the virtue of faithfulness because we rarely ever put ourselves in the place where we will have to practice faithfulness. We avoid committing ourselves to t- and our time to things. We avoid committing ourselves to people. And we quickly trot out that one phrase that's left in late modernity that works like a magic spell to ward off commitment. We say to each other, I'm so busy. I'm really busy. Maybe I can do that. We're reluctant to commit our talents and our resources and our money to much of anything but ourselves because we want our options to be open. We're averse to being tied down in relationships to one another because what if something goes wrong? What if things get messy? What if it will end up costing me? And church, I just want to say that we were not meant to live this way. We are not meant to live like this. And in order to understand why that's true, in order to understand why living that way is actually less than what we have been created for, all we have to do is flip things around and put ourselves in the place of need. What about when something has gone wrong for me and I do not have what it takes to fix it? What happens when something in your life gets really messy and really troubled and you can't see your way clear to even get out of bed tomorrow morning, let alone solve the problem? What happens when we desperately need help? Well, you know what happens when you and I are in that spot. What we need in that moment is not another cautious, evasive friend who is reluctant to commit. What we need is someone who is faithful. We need someone who will make promises to us and then keep those promises. And church, that is who we have been called to be. That is who we have been made to be for the good of the world. People willing to make costly, weighty, sometimes messy promises for the good of others and then keep those promises. That's faithfulness. And the good news... (laughs) the good news to people like us, whether we're the ones who, who need or whether we're the ones who are reluctant to commit, the good news to every one of us here this morning is that to people like us, Jesus offers his own faithfulness. His faithfulness not only meets our need, it also makes us into faithful people. So Jesus and his disciples, they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was probably a grove of olive trees. They had probably been there before together. And now in the darkness of the garden, he asks the 11 who are left to sit with him while he goes a little further on to pray. But then he stops and he turns and he takes three of them away from the other eight to come even deeper with him into the garden. He asks Peter and James and John to come a little further with him. This isn't the first time these three have been 
singled out. They've had the privilege of having that happen again. These three had the privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured in front of their eyes. They had the privilege of hearing the voice of the Father from heaven say, this is my son and I love him. But these three have shared other distinctions as well. James and John, just a couple days before they headed into Jerusalem for that final week, they come to Jesus with their mother of all people. And they say, hey, Jesus, when, when we get to Jerusalem, when, when you set up your kingdom, we would like to have seats of power on your right hand and your left. It's such an odd story. They had so thoroughly misunderstood what was about to happen. But Jesus, Jesus treats them as brothers. He engages them as brothers anyway. He says, listen, you, you two don't know what you're asking. And then he asks them a question. Can you drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now, I, I don't know what they thought Jesus was talking about. I don't know what they thought he was really asking them. But I do know what they said. Yes, Jesus, absolutely we can drink that cup. Jesus, we want you to know we are faithful. We will stick with you to the end, absolutely. We're faithful, and you can count on it, Jesus. You can set your watch to it. We will be there for you. And then there's Peter. When Jesus told them just a few minutes before that they were all going to fall away, Peter about lost his mind. He was incensed. He said, listen, Jesus, I don't care if all these other fools fall away. I will never fall away. I will never deny you. Even if I have to die, Jesus, I will stick with you to the end. You'll see. It will be me and you, Jesus, at the end because I'm faithful. I'll be with you, Jesus. So that's it. Peter, James, and John, all three who had made promises to be faithful to Jesus. And of course, these are the ones that Jesus invites to go deeper with him into the garden. Why? Why does he want them? Why does he need them? Well, the answer to that question makes us walk headlong into a mystery. Because while they're walking, before Jesus has even had a chance to tell them why he's asked them to come, Matthew tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. I think that is a surprising thing to say about Jesus. And it must have been incredibly unsettling to have actually seen it happen. I mean, this is Jesus. They had been with Jesus for a long time. They had seen him angry. They had seen him cry at least once, probably more than once, but they had never seen Jesus like that. As Luke says in his gospel, Jesus was in agony. And so it must have been terrifying. It must have been deeply unsettling. And so Jesus looks at Peter, and he looks at James, and he looks at John, and he puts into words what it is that they're seeing. He helps them understand the moment He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Jesus is filled with so much pain, so much agony, so much distress, that he thinks he might die there in the garden. I know some of you have felt this way at some point in your life, probably more than a few of us, so sad 
so overwhelmed, so confused that your body takes over in a panic and you think you're going to die. I've felt that way once in my life. I don't wish it on anyone. And church, it is important for us to know that Jesus felt that way too. It is important for us to know that he thinks the grief, the fear, the trouble may be too great for him. He is staring into the face of chaos. He is staring into the face of madness and death. And he knows what those words mean. And he knows what it's going to cost him to walk into that. And he is overcome, as he says, to the point where he thinks he's going to die. The fact that Jesus can feel this way, the fact that he did feel this way, it seems like an untouchable mystery to me. But there is one thing I think we can lift out of that mystery and out of that moment and take with us, and that is this, that Jesus knows people like us. He knows what it's like to live as we live. As the psalmist says it, he knows our frame. And he knows our frame because he shared it with us. He knows us intimately. He has shared our life. And so it's precisely in this moment when these three find out why it is that they have been invited. Jesus says to them, remain here and watch with me. I mean, I think you could spend a million years thinking about this little moment, this second, where Jesus says to these guys, just stay here with me. I don't want to be alone. I mean, on the one hand, it makes no sense at all. And on the other hand, in the deepest part of who we are, it is the only thing that makes sense. I mean, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the true light of the world, the bread from heaven. This is Jesus, the only begotten of the Father. This is Jesus, the maker of the ends of the earth. This is Jesus, the one who made all of the deeps and unseen things. This is Jesus. And he wants his friends to be near him while he prays. He wants the comfort and the support of these fishermen. These clowns are clowns, but they're his friends, and he doesn't want to be alone. He wants them to stay and watch with him. <laughs> and then this mystery deepens because Jesus goes off further, and he prays this incredible prayer of faith. He says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is asking, Father, if there's another way, if there is some other way to, for me to be able to vanquish sin and to vanquish death, if there is some other way for me to be able to trample on the last enemy, then please let me do it. This is the cup. It is the cup that Jesus had spoken to James and John about. It is the cup that the Old Testament prophets had written about. The cup of wrath that had to be poured out on sin and injustice and treachery and denials and faithlessness in order for those things to be done away with forever. 
Jesus knows what drinking it is going to cost him. And even though he knows this, he prays this incredible prayer filled with faithfulness. Nevertheless, not what I want, what you want. See, this mystery we have walked into is the mystery of the incarnation. It is the mystery of God made flesh, not for his good, but for our good, yours and mine. It is the mystery of God made flesh for James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who Jesus knows will not drink that cup because they couldn't possibly drink that cup. It is the mystery of God made flesh for Peter, the cowardly denier who, honestly, along with all of us, in Jesus' reckoning, is more than worthy of his own death. He will die for deniers like Peter. So he gets up from praying. And he walks back to these three friends that he has asked to watch with him in this hour of his great sorrow. And they're sleeping. (laughs) Faithfulness like this world has never seen comes and looks at faithlessness that we know all too well. And church, it'll be so good for us, so good for us in so many different ways if we can get to the place where we can admit honestly to ourselves and to God that our place in this story is that place right there. Our place is with Jesus' sleepy friends. And so the question that we have to ask is, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to see them asleep and is he going to weigh this all out and go, you know what, they're totally not worth it. Is he gonna, is he gonna come back and see them asleep and just go, you know what, I'm gonna back out because they backed out first. Is he gonna walk away? Is he gonna leave them happy that he's not tied down to them anymore? Happy that he is not obligated anymore to these sleepy friends? Of course not. Of course Jesus won't do that. Instead, he gives them another invitation. Watch with me. And this time he says, hey, pray this time. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Pray that you have the strength to stay awake for me. And so he goes off and he prays the same prayer of faith that he has prayed before. He returns to his friends. And they are asleep again. This time, Jesus just leaves them asleep. He's going to have to walk this one out alone because they have already started falling away. So he prays this prayer of faith for a a third time. My father, if this can't pass unless I drink it, I'll drink it. I'll do it. And when Jesus comes back to his friends this time, things are definitely different. The sorrow and agony appear to have passed away from Jesus, and now he is settled. He wakes them up graciously. He wakes them up, though, with authority. He says, listen, you're going to have to sleep and take your rest later on because the hour is at hand for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. (laughs) 
Jesus doesn't speak these words with sadness or agony. He doesn't speak these words with resignation. Jesus speaks these words like this is the moment he has been waiting for his whole life. He doesn't wake them up so that they can help him fight against the soldiers who are on their way, even though one of them is clumsily going to do it. He doesn't wake them up so that they can make a quick getaway under the cover of darkness. He wakes them up so they can be awake enough to see everything that's about to go down. See, look over there. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus meets Judas with open hands. And here we are again staring at the luminous beauty of the sun, trying to keep our eyes open at the brightness of the sun. And you have to think to yourself, it couldn't have happened any other way, right? It couldn't have happened any other way. How else could Jesus have entered into this sorrowful hour? How else could have Jesus begun to drink this cup than with his sleepy, faithless friends at his side? How else would he have done it? He's with them. Because Jesus is walking into this hour, not in spite of their faithlessness, but precisely because of their faithlessness. Jesus is drinking this cup, not in spite of our faithlessness, but because of our faithlessness. This is what he came to do for our good. So, of course, the incarnate son is going to meet his betrayer with open hands because faithfulness is the hallmark of his love. And church, it is certainly really, really good news that Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and it gives us forgiveness for our faithlessness. It is incredibly good news that his death and resurrection and ascension mean that we are forgiven people. And if that's all that Jesus' faithfulness had done for people like us, it would be enough. And it would be worth our deepest gratitude for all of our lives and into eternity. But that is not all that Jesus' faithfulness has done for us. It has gone even further. His faithfulness has made Peter and James and John and you and me into new women and new men. Because he doesn't just take away our faithlessness. He hands us his own faithfulness. He gives us the gift, as St. Paul says, he gives us the gift of new selves and the power that we need to put those new selves on and live. And through the eyes of that new self, church, we start to see things really clearly, really differently and really clearly. That making commitments of our time to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to people here in church, that making those commitments doesn't restrict us. (laughs) It's not a restriction on your life and mine. We begin to see the giving of the things that we have, our money, our time, our, our, our presence, the giving of those things doesn't close down our options. It doesn't mean that we're missing something. We start to see clearly. We start to see clearly that entering into relationships with people that we think are probably going to go sideways, (laughs) entering into relationships that are messy with people who we're pretty sure are going to fall asleep when we need them the most, that's not bondage. It's freedom. (laughs) Because that's how we were made to live. 
That is the life that we were created to live. That is how Jesus lived and loved in this world. That's the life that he made us for. And he frees us to live that way. Part of being a Christian is being made to look and to live and to love like Jesus. He was happy to make costly promises and then keep those promises. This is the virtue of faithfulness that Jesus graciously hands to people like us. A habit of love that he gives to us for the good of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, give us whatever it is that we need as individuals to reach out and to receive this gift that you have given us of the faithfulness of your son. Help us to take it in so that we're changed and so that we can begin to live and love as he loved in our families, in our relationships, in this broken city, and in this broken world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.